Hi, I'm Kevin Williamson, and this is How the World Works, where we have conversations about work and our jobs and the role of work in our lives and our economy and our society. Today, we have with us an old friend, uh, writer George Weigel. George, thanks for being here. Nice to be here with you, Kevin. Who um, works in a genre of writing that sometimes gets a bad reputation. He is a hagiographer, among uh, among other things. Um, I wanted to bring this up. The, the first thing, though, is you know sometimes the column that I write, people will complain that it's not very timely, that I don't um, always concentrate on current affairs as much as I could. And I'd like to read you the first the first phrase from your most recent column. It starts off, ever since the 1596 Union of Brest. <laughs> uh, but actually, it ends up being relevant, and I, I enjoyed the column very much. So welcome to uh, How the World Works. And... Um, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is related to some of your work in, um, in, 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 in hagiography. One of the weird things you experience sometimes if you're in kind of Washington life or public life at all, um, if you're a journalist, is that occasionally you will see someone you know or someone you've at least met portrayed as a character in a movie. And that's always a little weird, I think. Like it's a, it's hard to get used to seeing someone that you, you you know in person being treated that way. But it's got to be stranger to see someone you've spent time with being canonized. And uh, I was wondering, how many people of your acquaintance have actually been formally canonized that you've met over your life? Uh, it's only John Paul II that only I can think of right now. I think there may be some in the future. Uh, let me add a friendly codicil to okay. your description. <laughs> uh, the two volumes of my John Paul II biography uh, include lots of critical stuff. I mean, oh, yeah, of it's course. Not yeah. A, uh, it's not a- uh, Well, that's the thing about the word hagiography. It gets used uh, to mean like sycophantic, right. flattering writing instead of just literally writing about- Well, you, you know that and I know that. Yes. We're now glad that everybody <laughs> who's listening to this knows that. Um, it was, uh, that was a remarkable experience, uh, not least because I had to- uh, do color commentary on the canonization for, for NBC. And yes. I'm, of course, the memory is just rolling back over almost 15 years of, of conversation, uh, some interesting work together. Um, but uh, I think there actually will be others that I have known who might be formally recognized as saints someday, including John Paul II's successor. Mm. Uh, I'm generally not of the view that this habit we've fallen into of canonizing popes, which was very rare in the history of the Catholic Church. So it was mm. a, uh, last pope canonized before Pius X, who was canonized, I think, in 1950, uh, was a pope from the 16th century. So yeah. that was a long run. And now we've had a sequence of these things. But I do think... Uh, from my uh, extensive interaction with him over longer than I knew Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, Joseph Ratzinger was a saintly man. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a brilliant man. He may have been the most learned man in the world at the time of his death. I mean, he knew more about more stuff than, than anybody I had ever met. But he was a genuinely... Uh, holy man. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me 
after I'm off the scene, that uh, he would be recognized as a saint. Yeah. So you've done a lot of interesting things in your life, and we'll we'll get to some more of those here later in the conversation. Uh, but the biography is probably the thing I think it's safe to say that you're, you're you're best known for. What was the lead up to that? How do you end up um, in that line of work? Uh, it was it was very odd, Kevin. Um, uh, wasn't something you planned for from the time you were in college? That- no, no, I certainly didn't. I didn't know who Carol Wojtyla was when I was in college. Uh, for a period of about four decades, from the seven to seventies, eighties, nineties, and and the first decade of the of the new uh, century, I did not end up at the end of a decade doing what I thought I would be doing at the beginning of a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff happened. I sensed a different vocational call, if you will, and I rearranged my life accordingly. Well, I want to hear about each of those decades. Let's uh, go through them. Well, uh, the beginning of the 1970s, I was in the seminary, Mm -hmm. and I uh, later decided that was not what God intended for my life. Beginning of the 80s, I was living in Seattle, working in a think tank, working for an alternative newspaper there. Thought I'd be there for uh, the rest of my life. Beginning of the 90s, I was running the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in in Washington and expected to do that forever. And at the beginning of the new century, I was spending about 36 weeks out of the 52 weeks of the year 2000 running around the world as each language edition of Witness to Hope, the first volume of my John Paul II biography came out. So it's it's been uh, interesting. Uh, I don't have a career. I mean, when, when kids say to me, how do I have a career like you? Uh, I say, well, I, I don't really have a career as career planners or career counselors or other generally useless people um, uh, suggest that one has such a thing. Uh, I think I have a, I, I've tried to live vocationally. You know, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been blessed with certain talents. How should I employ those at any given moment? And in 1995, while I was happily running the Ethics and Public Policy Center, had been for uh, six years at that point, I read for review an exceptionally stupid biography of John Paul II by a former New York Times reporter named Tad Schultz, mm-hmm. S-Z-U-L-C, pronounced Schultz. It's a Polish name. And I was, when I'm writing, uh, reading a book for review, I put a little X in the margin every time there's something wrong or dumb or whatever. By the time I finished Tad Schultz's biography of John Paul II. Uh, the book looked like a tic-tac-toe game. <laughs> and the thought occurred to me, I can do better than this. I mean, I just popped into my head. Side I can question. do better than this. Sure. Isn't it always better or easier to review really bad books? Because the reviews just kind of write themselves. Actually, I just reviewed a book on translating the Bible yes. uh, that was quite easy to write the review because it okay. was a good book. And I, the lead is the hard thing to get into your head in, so, a, in a positive review. With a negative review, you just drop the nuke at the beginning. I find that editors send there. me books they know are going to be bad books for me to review because <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they want from me. Uh, just give us the vitriol. And, uh, <laughs> well, I've done my share of that. In any event, anyway, um, later- 1997. 95. No, 95. So 
when um, I had had, I mean, I had known John Paul II for several years at that point, and it had been a good conversation, and I had gotten to know his press spokesman, Joaquin Navarro Valls, a Spanish layman, very able guy. We had become friends. I had told Joaquin that I did not think that even though Tad Schultz grew up in Poland, uh, spoke the language, that a man who had written an admiring biography of Fidel Castro was going to quite get John Paul II. <laughs> so after I had been vindicated in that negative prophecy, uh, I saw Navarro in May of that year. And I said, look, this is ridiculous. The millennium is coming. The turn of the millennium is coming in five years. Great Jubilee of 2000. Uh, there is no reliable biography of the Pope. Uh, we need to do something about this. So he and I talked, he agreed. He and I talked about people who possibly could take this on. And at the end of that conversation, uh, I said, I think I can do this. So you chained your way into it. I yeah. You were on the recruiting I, I, team. I, and you I, hired I, I chained my way into it. Right. And uh, at a dinner at the end of that year in December of '95, the Pope, who had become aware of this, made it very clear over the dinner table that he thought it'd be a good idea if I did this. So uh, I wrote his secretary uh, right after Christmas, and I said, "Thanks very much for dinner. Interesting conversation." May I please have a written indication of the Holy Father's will in this matter? Three weeks later, comes this plain gray envelope with a Vatican stamp on it. Didn't come through the nunciature, the Vatican embassy here in Washington. I don't know who this is from. I open it up. Well, it's a letter from John Paul II, typed on a manual typewriter with three typos in it. Actually. Wonder wonderfully Polonized English, please say hello to Mrs. Joan, my wife, for me, but indicating that he thought it'd be a good idea if I did this and that he would cooperate. So I had what I needed to do this, and then I rearranged my life to do it. So I left the presidency of EPPC, morphed into a senior fellow position there, and spent the next three years doing that project. So a big dividing line in biographies is biographies that are written with the assistance of the subject and biographies that aren't. Um, on top of that, you've got some interesting issues, I guess, procedure and etiquette that are specific to uh, the papacy. So it must have been an unusual book to write. It must have been a writing assignment that was really unlike anything you'd, you'd done before. Well, I always stress to people the book was my idea. It was not his idea. It was mm -hmm. my idea. And he agreed that he'd He must have known someone to was going to write a book about him. Well, other people were. Carl yeah. Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein fame was writing a book with an Italian journalist named Marco Politi. That was guaranteed to be a disaster. Um, Jonathan Quitney was writing a biography, which was not too bad, but you know, didn't really get inside the guy. I said to the Pope in March 1996, the first time I had seen him after the dinner, uh, previously described. I said, Holy Father, there are two things necessary to make this work. One is that I need access to you, your associates, and to certain pieces of paper that might not be normally available. And I have to be the judge of what those are. And the second thing is, you can't see a word of this until I hand you the finished product. 
to which he looked across the table at me and said, that's obvious. Let's talk about something <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I mean, he knew this was going to be DOA if it was a so-called authorized. Sure. Well, and he was a writer himself, too, so he must have been sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. So um, he was quite cooperative. I mean, I saw him on many, many occasions, and he always answered, frankly, what I asked him. How long does it take to write a book like that? I had been writing about John Paul II since 1979. So I thought I need to step back, gather as much material as I can, talk to as many people as I can, and see how things come into focus in perhaps a different way. So I spent all half of 96 and all of 97 without writing a word. Hmm. And then on January 2nd, 1998, I sat down in my study at home and hit the keyboard. And by December, I had a 2,200-word manuscript. 2,200? 2,200. Not 22,000. No, no. 22,200-page manuscript. Oh, page. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I said word. I write that in an afternoon. Yeah, no. I I do it in the morning. Yeah, yeah. No, 2,200-page manuscript. Okay. Which was then trimmed down to about 1,400 pages in the editorial process. So I was I was pumping out about um, twenty double space pages a day. So you're a fast uh, writer then? Yeah, I'm not an agonistic writer. I mean, I've never had a block or anything like that. What I did do, um, I've never been able to afford to have a writer's block. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a luxury that you have to have when you're <laughs> when your investment portfolio hits a certain level. By the fall of 1997, I had so much material that it occurred to me, I need a comprehensive outline of this thing, uh, or I'm just going to get lost in the material mm. once I start writing. So I called up a friend of mine, Father Scott Newman, who was in a the parish priest in Hanahan, South Carolina. And I said, if your rectory guest room is free, I propose to come down with my laptop four file boxes of files and two magnums of bourbon. And we're n- I'm not leaving until I get this beast outlined. So mm-hmm. he said, y'all come. <laughs> and uh, uh, 10 days later, I had an outline that was 124 pages long. How much bourbon did you have left? Uh, uh, not much. Okay. <laughs> Right, But that really helped. That gave a spine to this thing. So when I actually started writing... I mean, the outline was keyed to documents, to interviews, to mm-hmm. uh, all the material I'd gathered. So I could ride the tiger without the tiger riding me. Yeah. Because as I think you know, Kevin, from your own book work, books are like children. They they want to go their own direction sometimes. Yeah. And they start pushing back. And, you know, it's a disciplinary process to get the book to actually do what you want it to do. And I was very grateful that I had done that outline. It, it made a huge difference. Yeah. How does one um, pay the bills when you're taking a year off or two years off to work on a project like that? I, there was a significant work? advance uh, okay. for the English language version and for the foreign uh, foreign rights. So that kept things going. Okay. So they figured it was going to be a, a big seller. and uh, Well, I, want, I wanted to make sure were you that, that it wouldn't be. No, I wasn't. I thought I could do okay. this. Um, 
And the book has probably sold in all language editions. There are now 14 language editions of Witness to Hope. It's probably done a million copies around the world in okay. all language editions. Um, I'm surprised it's not more, actually. But I, it's a big book. I yeah. mean, it's a 900-page book. Um, uh, I did not want, for both his sake and mine, this project, to be attached to anything else but itself. Mm -hmm. So no money from foundations, no money, no money as a salary from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, the the advance paid for everything, mm -hmm. and we actually had a um, little bit of money, a little bit of that left over at yeah. the end. So we created a little family foundation to help support things that he would have wanted to see supported. You know, there aren't very many jobs where you get paid in advance the way you do sometimes uh, on a book. Um, how much of that sits in your mind when you're doing the work about, man, I've got to earn out this uh, check that's been written to me? Uh, well, I Witness to Hope was, I don't know, my 14th or 15th book. I can't remember. I had I had long ago decided that the publishing industry is insane, mm. and I'm I'm not going to worry about it. If they want to pay for a product that hasn't been delivered, that's on them, not not on me. So I know I did not uh, worry about that. Um, the time pressure on this was to get it done in time for that talismanic year two thousand. Yeah. So that was that that was the pressure. But no, I did not feel uh, the pressure of I've been paid for something that I haven't done yet. And so when you're working on something like that, you get up, you sit down at your desk at a regular hour and work for eight or 10 hours a day? Or how does, what's your, what's your daily schedule look like? When, you're I, I, when I'm book? doing a book project, I, I work at home because mm -hmm. that's where most of my library and materials are. Um, I would write from nine to 12 or one. Uh, have a lunch break, uh, take a little nap. I'm a great believer in naps. Uh, clean up whatever else I had to work on between four and five because, you know, I have this column. I have people emailing me and writing me and whatnot. And then I would write again from five to seven. Okay. So the, the writing time was like six hours a day. And I don't think anybody can do more than that without starting to put out gibberish. I know a lot of people who will say they want to be writers and they like the idea of being a writer, but the actual work of writing is pretty lonely work. You know, you're locked in a room by yourself and a lot of people aren't, uh, aren't very well suited for that. Um, does it, does it grind on you when you're on, you know, week 50 and, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I, or you think you well, might have been a good ecclesiastic in a different what different would be line. I mean I, I I know how to work by myself yeah. I mean uh, and and this was this was telling a story uh, I think biographies ought to tell stories which means they ought to be linear which means no book of mine will ever be filmed by Christopher Nolan mm. um, uh, that's too bad. Well, I, I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I thought Dunkirk was a disaster. I'm sorry. Okay. But um, I haven't seen uh, Oppenheimer yet. Um, but uh, what, what would terrify me is uh, writing a novel. Oh, yeah? I cannot imagine how someone can sit down and make up a world out of their head. I mean, when I write, I've got- Have you met George I've, Santos? 
<laughs> Lots of people are good at making stuff up. I know, it's but making it fun to read. It's yeah, it, I, I just, it's just not part of my cognitive or intellectual or psychological makeup. Um, and when I write, I'm working from an outline. I'm reacting to something in a column. It's there, and you know, it's in front of me or to the side of me. But the idea of creating an entire human universe, or in the case of science fiction, non-human universe, yeah, and then filling that out, um, uh, just just amazes me. I once talked. I had a long lunch with Herman Woke once at mm. the Cosmos Club here in Washington. Uh, he was a terrific character, and I asked him once. Uh, he used me as a kind people of people who are not familiar with his work. Oh, Herman Woke, uh, The Kane Mutiny, mm -hmm. Winds of War, War and Remembrance, Marjorie Morningstar, even the most successful popular novelists in the late 20s, half, second half of the 20th century. And of course, the key character played by Humphrey Bogart in the movie uh, uh, The Kane Mutiny yes. uh, was a guy named Captain Queeg. So one day, Herman and I are sitting in the uh, Cosmos Club. He used to use me as a kind of sounding board on what's going on in the Catholic world and, and whatnot. And I said, where did Captain Quig come from? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll tell you. He said, there were actually three mutinies in the United States Navy during the Second World War. He had been a naval officer during the war. They were all in port. They weren't in the uh, out at, at sea. But he said, I got permission to read the court-martial transcripts mm. of, of these mutiny trials. And, and Quig just happened. Yeah. And I said, well, then where did General von Roon come from? This German who's the kind of other side of the hill commentator in both Winds of War and War and Remembrance. He said, well, I've just, I've read a lot of German military history and Armin von Roon just came out of that. I can't do stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was absolutely fascinated by by him telling me how he had done that. Yeah. It's always the stuff that you can't do yourself that seems the most uh interesting or um impossible. At least it's, it's always the case for me. I wonder whether it's actually easier in that kind of an enterprise to write like Dickens and Trollope wrote, because those things were those huge novels yeah. were serialized magazine articles and then got bound together. If you got to produce every two weeks to keep the food coming, that that might have yeah, something. Tom Wolf wrote Bonfire of the Vanities as a serial. Apparently, it just almost had a nervous breakdown. Uh, was was it a serial? I think I didn't it was serialized in Rolling Stone. Yeah, is that if right? I'm recalling yeah. correctly. You grew up in Baltimore. Yeah, is that correct? I did. Yeah. Well, right. Tell me about growing up in Baltimore. I did a chapter on this in a book I wrote. Um, in 2005, who, which is now out in an expanded and revised edition called Letters to a Young Catholic. It's kind of an explanation of the church and its beliefs and practices through the vehicle of a tour of the Catholic world, uh, including Rome, Jerusalem, uh, places in Great Britain, places in France, places in the Sinai Desert. And the first of these letters is about Baltimore. And it's about growing up in what was the last moment of intact Catholic urban culture mm -hmm. in the history of the church in the U.S. in the 50s and, and early 60s. Um, there was a lot that was wrong with it. It was a, uh, I 
said in my remarks at my mother's funeral. My mother uh, lived to be 95, 94, 95. So she saw a lot. And in reflecting on this at her funeral, I said, you know, she grew up in a city where everything and everyone was segregated. Uh, that was the bad side. Um, and yet there were still intact family structures, both white and black. It was still an industrial and port city. I mean, Bethlehem Steel at the time of the Second World War in Baltimore, and the Sparrows Point neighborhood of Baltimore, employed 110,000 people. Yeah. Uh, Sparrows Point today is like the far side of the moon. I mean, it's just desolate. What did your, what did your father do? My father was in the insurance business. Mm. Uh, my father was in the insurance business. He worked downtown for when I, most of my childhood. Uh, I went to school downtown at the old cathedral school on Mulberry Street for the first three grades, and then that school moved out to the northern part of the city. Uh, I had a terrific education um, uh, in elementary school, uh, religious sisters mostly. Did you have uh, summer jobs and stuff, things you did when you were a kid? I did that in high school, yeah. What did you do? Mowed grass. Mowed grass. Uh, drew lines on maps at the AAA for members taking trips places. Uh, explain that to me. So. Well, in a, in a world before GPS, mm -hmm. it was this thing called the American Automobile Association. And if you were driving to the Grand Canyon from Baltimore, you would get a series of maps with the route highlighted for you. I see. And a, and a flip thing called a triptych, not like the three-paneled icon, but T-R-I-P-T-I-K, mm -hmm. which had, you know, this trip in little pieces. So I would prepare triptychs. I would draw talk. lines <laughs> lines on uh, on maps. Did you ever uh, mess it up and give someone the wrong? No, directions? but I had a I had a terrible experience once. Is I uh, you could work in the back room doing all this map stuff. Or some some weeks you're out in the front desk and people would walk in to get this stuff done for them while they wait. And this guy comes in, he was a steel worker at what was left of Bethlehem Steel. And he said, my family and I uh, have uh, always wanted to go to Alaska. And I thought, this is fantastic. I mean, I'm tired of drawing maps of people driving to Cape May or uh, the Outer Banks or something like that for Baltimore. This is going to be very cool. So we spent an hour you know, mapping out this thing to Alaska. And he's got this triptych that's got to be three inches thick. And he's got 15 <laughs> maps. And I said to the guy at the end of this, I said, by the way, how long do you have for your vacation? He says, oh, I got a whole 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to weep. I mean, you had to break his heart. I said, well, you know, short of flying to Vancouver and starting the trip from there, uh, my friend, you've got a problem. Um, so from Catholic Baltimore to left-wing alternative newspaper in Seattle. It is was, yeah, it was an interesting jump. Um, an interesting jump. Different places. The, uh, by the way, I don't think most people who knew your your, your career in the last 30 years or so would think there's a guy who worked at an alternative newspaper in Seattle. It was the golden age of those things, as as you know. I mean, mm -hmm. Boston Phoenix. What years are we talking about here? Um, late 70s, mm -hmm. early 80s. Uh, the aforementioned Tom Wolfe started out that way. 
the Boston Phoenix. I mean, the Village Voice was the original one, but the Boston Phoenix, the New York, uh, the New, what was the New Orleans paper called? Can't remember. Anyway, there was a, uh, a semi-defrocked academic. He just got tired of teaching English at the University of Washington, named David Brewster, who started the Seattle Weekly with in this mode of. You know, combination newspaper, news magazine, weekly thing, um, tabloid, big tabloid format. And David was the original Energizer Bunny. Uh, I mean, he was a very fine writer himself, very close student of local politics at the time when Seattle had not lost its mind and there was a you know, serious, not crazy reform politics going on. Um. And he was willing to give anybody a chance at anything. So, for example, our football writer on the Seattle Weekly was Alan First, who is now one of the most successful espionage novelists oh, in yeah. the Anglosphere. One of Alan's novels was plotted out on my living room floor with a National Geographic map of Central Europe, and we're all drawing lines on it. Um. The guy who – the most impressive basketball writer I ever knew was a guy named Roger Sale, who was a main figure in the English department at the University of Washington, just happened to know basketball. Hmm. Um, David originally asked me to do sermon reviews <laughs> for the Seattle Weekly because he thought one way to take the measure of – city and its culture was the quality of preaching in its churches. You know, old newspapers used to run transcripts of right. sermons sometimes. I don't think I've ever seen a sermon review in a well, newspaper. Well, I had lots of friends in the local clergy, and I thought th these friendships are going to be under considerable strain yeah. if I start doing so. So I said to him, look, I would rather write about um, church issues more broadly, foreign policy. So yeah, he was fine with that. And then one summer... Our baseball writer decided to uh, go over to the dark side of the force and become the AP stringer uh, for baseball, Associated Press stringer mm -hmm. in Seattle. So uh, we didn't have a baseball writer. So I volunteered along with uh, my friend John Miller, who was then a city councilman or a retired city councilman, later spent four terms in Congress, was the first U.S. Ambassador, Special Ambassador to Combat Human Trafficking, wonderful guy. So I had a fabulous summer hanging around the worst baseball stadium in the history of stadia, the Kingdom. Um, so I did lots of stuff for the weekly. But David really honed me as a writer. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't think I was a bad writer at that stage, but I wrote like an academic. And he taught me how to write. You know, I, I was a newspaper editor for most of my career before I went to National Review. And I've always thought one of the great things about that background is that, uh, particularly with daily newspapers, but weeklies as well, is that you just don't have any choice about writing. It's, you know, you've got this thing to do. It's got to be done in the next 45 minutes. And if it's not done, that's it for you. And uh, that was that was great training, I think. It was a good way to learn how to focus on things and, and, and do things quickly. Let that, me just say one other well, word about yeah, Seattle yeah, yeah, Weekly, yeah. if I might. Um David was genuinely ecumenical mm -hmm. in his uh, politics. I mean, he was a kind of classic Northwest liberal Republican. I was him. 
uh, of the Dan Evans, if anybody remembers Dan Evans. No one does. Uh, no one does. That sort. <laughs> they were the Rockefeller Republicans of the, of, West, of, yeah. of the West. But the best piece I ever wrote for Seattle Weekly was the cover story on the death of Scoop Jackson. Hmm. Um, which another name that is fading, I think. Yeah, unfortunately, the last adult uh, in the United States Senate, I think. Um, maybe some contemporary possibilities, but no, David. Um, you know, as I was writing myself into, if I may use the dread word, neoconservative politics, oh, yeah. Yeah. he was he was very supportive, and he never. Um, Never, uh, there was never a party line yeah. to be but maintained. There was a time when those alternative weeklies really were very freewheeling and intellectually open. Then I think about, you know, Nat Hentoff being chased off from the sure. village voice in the last days of his life. And, uh, you know, this guy who was a lifelong uh, kind of left-wing New York civil libertarian right. jazz writer who spent the last days of his career working. Was it for Cato that he ended up working for? Or was it AEI? I can't, I can't, I remember. can't remember. Or for some, you know, sort of right of center think tank, which well, was the only place that it was the pro-life stuff. Yeah. Finish Nat Hentoff. Yeah. I mean, when that became, uh, when the sexual revolution became the religion of the left, Nat Hentoff was finished because yeah. of that. Uh, and, you know, God bless him. He was a, an honest engine. Yeah. That kind of takes me to one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, you know, institutions and, and, and the roles of institutions that um, there are certain kinds of work that you can kind of do on your own in an entrepreneurial kind of way. A lot of writers really are that way. I know some writers who just never really had like a job with a salary or anything. They go from one thing to the next. And if you're really successful and really good at it, that's a great way to do it. Uh, but then there are people like me who sort of you know, rely on going from institution to institution to do kinds of work. And among the many things you've done in life besides teaching and writing is you're also an institution founder. And I'm thinking here specifically of the, uh, of the, of the Madison, uh, it's the Madison Foundation, it's called. Or yeah, Madison, yeah, it doesn't exist anymore, but yeah. uh, uh, it was an extension of work I'd been doing on the in Seattle with a, a gang with the improbable name of the World Without War Council. Yes, which was the only pro-democracy, anti-communist peace organization I've ever run into in my life. Uh, so what is it like you know, sort of building and, and founding and trying to uh, grow something like that? Man, I hate using grow as a, as yeah, a, as yeah, a verb like sure. that. It's terrible. I'm sorry I did that. Well, I, perhaps the better example would be the seven years I ran the Ethics and Public okay. Policy Center. Um, I, that was I inherited an institution that, yeah. that, that was had been founded by my predecessor. It was in somewhat rough shape at when I when the board brought me in to move things in a somewhat different direction. Um, but there were some very good colleagues, and I told them at our first staff meeting, the first day I took over, June 1st, 1989, I said, my job is to help you do your job better, and part of your job is to tell me when you think I'm screwing up, and and no one will ever get in trouble for doing that. That sort of cleared the air and people had permission to, you know, to do the good work they were capable of doing. Um, and uh, that was indeed the golden age of, of right of center think tanks yeah. in, in the U.S. There was a lot of money available. Uh, there was a lot of good work done. 
And it really made a difference in, in those years. Um, uh, some of, some of the results of which we're still seeing today. Um, so, uh, but I, 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 for instance, because it's always an interesting question to me of how organizations like that judge their success. You know, what's your delivery? Well, I, I was actually talking to a group of young people here in Washington about that last night. And I, I said, well, I mean, if you look at these const this constellation of right of center organizations uh, in their golden era, um, we kept the pro-life cause alive when everybody thought that was a settled issue. And we've been vindicated in that. Now, that was with a huge assist from the Federalist Society and and whatnot, because that was the crucial legal piece of the uh, puzzle. I think we, I said to these kids last night, we gave America through the Reagan administration and um, then uh, particularly Bush too, a sensible human rights policy internationally that was not the nonsense of the Carter years, but mm -hmm. was... Uh, was a principled uh, human rights policy that that played a significant role in the collapse of European communism. I think everybody recognizes that. Um, I wasn't so much involved in this, but the the renewal of the idea of enterprise as a good thing and competitive enterprise as a mm -hmm. good thing uh, largely came out of that world. I mean, that did not come out of the, I mean, some came out of the academy. Okay, I mean, competitive enterprise is literally the name on the door here. So yeah, I'll yeah. Be like, uh, yeah. Um, like but I mean, what Mike Novak did mm -hmm. and Irving Kristol and others at the American Enterprise Institute uh, really gave a whole new moral and cultural foundation to the free enterprise uh, system. So uh, those were big accomplishments. Um, those are three I can think yeah. of. You know, when we talk about work and enterprise, it's almost always in economic terms, which, of course, are terms right. that, that make sense. But there also is a sort of non-market, non-economic quality to it. I sometimes think of, uh, you know, William F. Buckley described his his motives for his working day is that, you know, he, li he liked getting paid and he liked the exercise of doing something he was good at. But mostly he liked knowing that he hadn't just sat on his ass all day, as he put it, <laughs> or all afternoon. And... Um, we do get something out of work that is um, that is important besides the paycheck. Um, for instance, I was having a conversation this morning with a colleague about um, um, people with mental disabilities who who do work, and often you know it's not that they're supporting families or that their families need the income, but this work is a very very important part of their lives. It gives them a structure, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of value, a sense that they're contributing uh, to the world in some way. So um, sometimes, you know, in, in, in the policy world, you may actually get a policy change done. And it takes 20 years, 50 years sometimes, and it's very hard to see what you're accomplishing. But uh, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that in terms of the value of um, I'm just getting up and doing something worthwhile and something yeah. productive every day. Uh, let's go back to my uh, Baltimore childhood. Sure, yeah. Uh, catechism class. Um, this is pre-Vatican II. And wh while this was never Catholic doctrine, the way the Adam and Eve story was presented in those days uh, 
led to the conclusion that work is a punishment for original sin. You know, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat, and you will deliver your children in pain, and all this business. And which did not give us a very happy view of Adam and Eve. I mean, the notion that if these two characters hadn't made a mess of things, nobody would have to learn the multiplication tables was, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, was in lots of people's minds. Uh, John Paul II, who was the first pope in a very long time to have been a manual laborer, mm-hmm. uh, breaking rocks in a quarry during the German occupation, schlepping buckets of lime in a chemical factory, uh, was also a, a deeply philosophical man, and all human activity, from his point of view, you know, ought to be reflected upon, both philosophically and spiritually. And so in in his uh, first, what we call social encyclical on work, simply that's the name of it, Laborum Exerchens, doing work, um, he writes, uh, he, he just turns that whole work as punishment for original sin thing on its head and said, uh, first of all, uh, God did not finish creating the world in the biblical seven days, whatever that meant. Uh, He reminds us of what Thomas Aquinas wrote, that if God wanted to end the world, God would not have to do something. God would have to stop doing something. God's ongoing creativity of the world is his sustaining of, of the creation. That's the first point. Second point from John Paul II is our work is our participation in God's sustaining creativity of the world. So it has spiritual value. And the point of work is not simply to make more or get more. It's to be more. It's to exercise those talents, whatever they are, that each of us has. And therefore, social welfare programs should be aimed at unleashing those talents within people who haven't yet acquired the skills to be fully participatory in in the work economy. So what my my friend Nick Eberstadt has been writing about for a long time, I'm sure you know Nick too, men, Men Without Work, this is a huge, this is not just an economic problem or a social problem because it intersects with all sorts of other social problems. It's a spiritual problem. These are people living spiritually unfulfilled lives because those talents are not being exercised. And talents are like muscles. If you don't exercise them, they're going to atrophy. And in practical terms, what do you think are the the most promising um Ways to address that, or at least to mitigate the problem. Um, this, this is not my lane to drive in, but sure, let, me, yeah. let me drive out of my lane for a minute. That's what we do. Right? Um, getting rid of the myth of college yeah, and re- returning to the notion of trade schools, which would be very different from the trade schools of the 1920s or 30s, but giving people the skills to do those jobs, which actually – you know, in competitive enterprise terms, pay very well. Mm-hmm. You're going to do quite well in this country if you're a plumber who knows what they're doing yeah. or an electrician or a computer techie or whatever. The myth that everybody has to go through college, particularly with the condition of 
American higher learning today is, has just got to be stopped. And I think the employers who set out to um, support uh, training programs for high school kids, maybe marrying the high school curriculum to a, a work training curriculum, um, uh, as some schools uh, do in cooperation with uh, corporations. Uh, there's a there's a network of schools across the United States, Catholic high schools called the Cristo Ray schools, mm -hmm. in which uh, kids um, from poor families. I mean, there's a threshold beneath which your family has to be to get into these things, but who are willing to work academically and work wise are placed in jobs for 10, 12 hours a week, as well as their academic work. And when they finish high school, they are either ready to do a serious college program or they're ready to, ready to enter the workforce. I, I think that's, a, that, that's one solution to this. Yeah. But I'm very down on the myth of everybody's got to go to college. Yeah, I am too. And uh, one of the reasons for that is I think that kind of the fundamental cultural problem in a lot of ways is that we have such low regard for work and for mm. kind of, you know, common, ordinary, honest work. So we attach a lot of status to jobs that require an advanced degree. Uh, we attach a lot of status to jobs that make you either very, very wealthy or very, very famous. Um, but we don't attach a lot of status to jobs that are just sort of ordinary jobs that ordinary people do to support themselves and their families. In fact, we kind of kind of look down on those. The example um, I, I often use is that um, absent the world of reality television, um, people who do things like who are welders or do other sorts of jobs like that we're always sort of looked down you know, upon as uh, this kind of, uh, you know, blue collar cast of people. And so you had the weird phenomenon with reality television, though, of people who make $75,000 a year playing with spreadsheets, going home and watching television shows about guys who are motorcycle customizers who right. actually make $500,000 a year doing this. But they're welders and uh -huh. stuff and these, you know, kind of blue collar guys doing blue collar jobs. And but there's a sense that, you know, if you were. 17 years old and your parents asked you what you want to do for a living and uh, which college you're going to go to. And you say, what I really want to do is uh, be a welder. I want to learn how to work on cars or uh, do automotive work or body work. Um, there would be a sense of, eh, maybe don't do that. You know, uh, maybe go get an English degree instead. I was an English major and, um, and, and see how that works out for you. Um, and one of the other problems I have, uh, that I think we, we, we need to address is the, um, the issue of path. Um, so if you are 18 years old and you want to be a lawyer, you know what you have to do. You know, you go to college, you study certain things, try to get good grades, you study for the LSAT, you go to law school, uh, you become a, you know, first year associate at a law firm and that's what your career looks like. But if you want to be, uh, someone who's working in a skilled blue collar profession, if you've got, you know, a, an uncle or family member who's already, you know, in the union or already doing this kind of work, then maybe you've got a way to connect with it. But there are people who are you know, smart, energetic, talented people who are just not academically inclined, don't need to be an academically inclined. It's not the only way to live a happy life. Um, but they, they don't know that there are things that they could do in their lives, but they don't know how to get from where they are to yeah. where that place is. And that is the problem. I really think that um, if we could solve that and really um, 
and really um, make some progress there. I think that would be just enormously, enormously beneficial. How would you set up path counseling, if you will? You know, I've often thought that if we had a more um, intelligent and less self-centered and rapacious labor movement, that this would be something that they could really um, contribute to. In some places, you have labor unions that do pretty good apprenticeships programs and that do various kinds of outreach. And that's a really useful and productive uh, use of their resources, I think, but it's just not that, that widespread. And instead, you know, most of their work ends up being concentrated in political lobbying of various kinds that doesn't um, that doesn't either help um, people connect with work and doesn't in the long term, I think, help the interests of their uh, trades and professions either. Um, but that's uh, that's maybe a long lecture for for another uh, another period. But I just say you know, I often think of people I've known in life who have sort of lucked into um, or just kind of floundered around until they they found that thing that really worked for them, that they didn't have to do that. You know, there are things that if we had intervened in their lives when they were 16 or 17 years old and said, listen, we're not telling you what you have to do with your life, but if you want to do X, Y, or Z, here's how you right. can do those things. Right. And that doesn't look like getting an MBA or going to law school or, you know, getting a master's in whatever and, uh, and, uh, and doing the step-by-step thing that people have. You know, developing a kind of um, a kind of uh, career course uh, for people outside of the professions that require a college degree or a professional license. Oh, well, so many blue collar jobs now, of course, require professional licenses too, and that's a whole other uh, issue. Uh, I wonder if one could not build into elementary and secondary education. It wouldn't be shop in the traditional sure, sense, yeah. but craft education. Here's how to do things with your hands. Here's how to make stuff. I have to uh, tell you, I'm skeptical of all proposed solutions that rely on the public school system oh, to do well, something that, smart. That, no, I, <laughs> no I'm, talking about, I'm talking about <laughs> charter schools, yeah, yeah, yeah. Catholic schools, independent schools. No, I mean, the public education disaster of this country right now is is just unbelievable and um uh i i have said i may have even written this that the the two most regressive social forces in the united states right now are the teachers unions and aarp aarp yeah which is going to bankrupt the country uh with the entitlements with the entitlements Yeah. yeah um I had interesting conversations actually with John Paul II about this because mm. he, he was a big union guy, I mean, yeah. his solidarity and whatnot. And I, I said, you know, the unions just don't work in our country. That most of them don't work that way anymore. And I have, I, I remember writing in, in one essay about this that a trade union, of course, has to be about its own when it's only about its own. When there's no horizon of the common good here, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And um, there are different ways to be a union, too. Um, I I often say that I don't really think that unions in general are, by definition, a problem or something that doesn't have a role in the marketplace. I think the American labor unions and and their leadership are a problem. Um, Whereas, you know, they're troubled unions in in Europe as well. But I think of something like IG Metall in uh, in Germany as being maybe a, a more productive uh, version of, of labor organization where you do have a more, at least it seems from the outside, a more genuinely collaborative and intelligent and uh, 
and enlightened uh, form of partnership between the between the labor leaders and the uh, and the business management. I, my paternal grandfather worked at Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore for fifty years. Yeah, and he was a you know he was a USW guy. He was in a management position in the last years of his life, but he was a member of Steelworkers Union. I mean, he did not regard the guys in Pittsburgh as necessarily the adversary. Yeah. And nor did they regard him and, and the people of his generation. But that really broke down uh, rather seriously. Um, uh, I, I think in the 60s, when yeah. so many other things broke down sure. seriously. Uh, a couple of related closing questions, sure. and then I'll, I'll let you get out of here. Um, I think I, I like to ask people. The first one's pretty easy, I think, in a lot of ways, which is, what is the most enjoyable part of your work? Uh, the thing that you really most enjoy doing, the thing that gives you the most satisfaction, and obviously besides getting paid. We all like getting paid. I enjoy editing myself. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean- I, Are you for, a good self-editor? I am, yeah. I mean, even those little 750-word columns you see, I've gone over that sucker six times, mm. and I do it by hand. I compose into a computer, print it out, and then edit myself by really? hand. Really? And I have why, a lot why of- Why do you do that? I don't know. I've, I mean, I've never thought about it. I've just done it that way forever. Hmm. But I, I explain it to people, particularly in long form writing, whether it's books or <clears throat> long, longer essays. Doing a first draft is blocking out the cabinet. Doing the editing is the cabinetry. This is how, <laughs> this is how you make it beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you, have reasonable deadlines, give yourself some time, work in a steady way. You have time to make the object beautiful. Yeah. So I really enjoy that. That's that's a lot of actual quite fun for me is self-editing. I, I intensely dislike editing other people's stuff because uh, I'm constantly thinking, well, you know. That was my job for that? a long time. Yeah, yeah, why'd you do that? You dope. What is this here? And uh, so the flip side question, of course, is um, – what are things that you still have to do in your work that you would rather not? Hmm. Like just the unpleasant necessities of, of your occupation. I'm not sure there really are any. Uh, that is I mean, not I, true. <laughs> you just have not thought about it hard enough. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the work family balance is always an interesting challenge. Mm. Um, I have made, my that is a matter of time availability or travel sure, time or, travel whatever I, I now i used to enjoy travel travel was a pain in the neck now yes i mean i i do 40 or 50 speaking engagements a year uh airlines have become a complete nightmare it's the only industry i know car rentals that treat airlines the only people soviet I, well, I've had better experiences with since we're at the Competitive Enterprise Institute enterprise car rental okay. than with bloody airlines, who yeah. are the only industry I know who treat their customers as adversaries. Yes. Uh, so that's a pain. Um, you know, I have had to raise my own salary for the 40 years I've been in the nonprofit world. Yeah. 40 plus years I've been in the nonprofit world. I've actually enjoyed that in some respects mm. because I've met a lot of very interesting as well as generous people. I don't like asking people and for money. I find that, it very difficult. I, I, I've learned to do it, and uh, I've always tried to treat my philanthropic benefactors as partners, mm. not cash registers or banks. Um, 
But I would say right now it's the running around that's uh, that's um, that's most uh, most unpleasant. Yeah, the, the travel thing you mentioned is a funny story. I was doing a talk at a university a few years ago, and uh, I got there and I had rented a car from wherever from the nearest airport and driven in, and um, we had a nice conversation. They were like, and they were saying, you know, thank you for being so easy to work with, um, and I don't think I'm particularly easy to work with. And they said, you know, we had our last speaker in this series was, was a writer you and I both know and um, a very nice guy and a guy who absolutely deserves it. But they were like, you know, we had to pay him so much and we had to send a private plane for him to pick him up and bring him out and all that sort of stuff. And I just, I was there thinking, I did not ask these people for enough money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If I had known that that was an option, I would have been a lot less easy to work with, I guarantee you. But um that is just one of those things. But yeah, travel is uh, is the worst right now. But you were saying about raising your own salary. And, no, no, and that's. Stuff. I mean, that's it's just part of you know my life. But uh, um, no, I've been I've been extremely fortunate in my uh, benefactors, and um, uh, I've been extremely fortunate, and I will say blessed. In, in following this notion of vocation rather than career, mm-hmm. where the question is, what ought I be doing next? What, and what should sen- I be doing? Does next? the sense of vocation have an expiration date for you? Is is retirement something for people like you? Or are you just going to keep? I'm, se- until I'm you seventy-two. I'm are seventy-two. Really? I'm hard. I find it hard to believe I'm seventy-two because mm. uh, I was always the youngest guy at the meeting for <laughs> for many years, yeah. and now I'm the old crock here. <laughs> I don't have any immediate retirement plans. I think I'm still productive. I enjoy doing it. I might slow down on the travel a little bit. But um, my my retirement would give too much pleasure to my critics for me to <laughs> indulge it right now. So that's what keeps you going, huh? But that's not the only thing, but it, it, it helps. And is there another big project on the immediate horizon? I don't have a book project. Uh, I've done 29 books now. And I just a lot do not have a book project. In You've mind. worn out some chairs. And I'm going to – I'm not going to push it. I, I just – I mean, I might do another couple of you know, essay collection type things or whatever. But no, I'm not feeling uh, pressed to do number 30 just so it's a round number or something. That's a lot of books. <laughs> All right. Well, George, I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks for your time and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Great. Pleasure.